Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. Uh, my name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first Sunday, I want to give you a special shout out. Welcome. Glad you're here. If this is your second Sunday. Welcome back. Uh, so we had lots of people join us for the first time last Sunday. So last Sunday, we called Back to School Sunday, uh, and it was just awesome. It was an incredible weekend. If you were here, you know that. Uh, we launched our third worship service, okay, and we had record attendance and adults and students and kids, the whole thing across the board. And man, we celebrate that because every, every number represents a person, a person that is made in God's image and that Christ came to die for. And so we love it when new people come and join us on Sundays. We gave away like over 200 cups of Kona ice, which was fun, you know. My kids ate like 50 of those, 200, I think. Um, and we got to give uh, out 100 grit gift cards to students and teachers and parents that were going back to school to just say, hey, we love you. We hope you have a great first week of the school year. So, man, for all of you that attended, that served, that gave, that prayed, that invited to make that possible, I just want to say thank you. It was an incredible way to kick off the fall. Man, I'm really, really excited about what is in store. Um, you may have noticed if you look around this room that our college students are back. Yeah, college students! Um, so we love you guys. We're really, really grateful uh, that you're here. One of the major reasons that we planted Center Church here in Charlottesville uh, was uh, the college students that are in this town. Um, here's, here's what I've found. Maybe this is true for you. Maybe it's not. But I think that most people look at their spiritual experience in college as one of two things. Usually, it's either a spiritual greenhouse or a spiritual wasteland, okay? Like, those are kind of the two options that most people have. A greenhouse, maybe it's like, that's where I came to Christ. That's where I learned to read my Bible. That's where I learned to share the gospel and to live in community and to, and to really own my faith. That was, that was a greenhouse. Or maybe you look at it and you're like, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I wasted my years in college. I kind of wandered from the faith. I didn't really make it my own. And, and honestly, I'm just sort of trying to recoup from that as a young adult. Um, that's what you'll find as uh, you talk to people who look back on their college years. Here's our heart. We want to help you if you're a college student have a greenhouse and not a wasteland, okay? We want to you, help you have a greenhouse and not a wasteland. We want to come alongside of you, help you make friends, help you grow in your faith, and help you make an impact where you are right now. Because here's, here's what we believe. Your education is not just about your future income. It's also about your present impact. Okay, so like, yeah, go to, go to UVA, go to PVCC, get some skills, get some training so that you can get a job and provide for yourself in the future. But don't waste the time that you have in college because they're very, very strategic years. So historically, God has done some pretty amazing things in and through college students. So here's what you'll find out. If you go back and you read church history, here's what you find. Every major revival in Western church history has started on or near a university campus. Think about that. The Reformation in the 1500s started when Martin Luther was a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. The First Great Awakening in the 1700s started when George Whitfield, John Wesley, and Charles Wesley met as students at Oxford. And the student volunteer movement of the 1800s, which sent more missionaries overseas than the previous 300 years in American church history, that movement started with five students at Williams College in a prayer meeting in New England. Right, so, so historically speaking, if you want to be a part of spiritual awakening in the 21st century, there is no better place to be than a college town. Okay, there is simply no better place to be than a college town. We are passionate about engaging with college students. It's why we have an incredible, robust, on-grounds ministry called Center College. Center College, big shout out for Center College. Thank you. All right, Center College. Here's what Center College is. It is the bridge between the church and the university. It is the bridge between the lawn and the lobby, okay? It is how uh, you are both a student in college and you also belong to a local church. Because here's what I don't want to have happen. This is what happens to so many students. All right, let me level with you for just a second. Don't get mad at me. I'm just being honest. I know church is no place to be honest, but let's be honest. Okay, here's what happens. You go to school. You're kind of vaguely connected to a ministry or whatever, but you're not really ever connected. You kind of go to church a little bit. You graduate. You get your first job. It's in D.C. It's awesome. You're excited. You move there. You're like, oh, my goodness. I don't have to be an adult Christian. 
right? Like, like that happened to me. That's like, I just described to you my college experience. Man, so many people never really learn how to belong to a local church. And so then you get out of school and you got work and you got relationships you're trying to figure out. It's just like, oh, this is really overwhelming. Here's what we want to do. We want to help you lay a foundation now in college that's going to serve you for like the next 60 years of your life. So that when you leave here and you go get your job in Richmond or Raleigh or D.C. or New York, wherever you go, you're like, oh, I know how to do this. Like, I know how to find a church. I know how to join a group. I know how to build relationships outside of college, okay? We want to set you up for the next 60 years of your spiritual life, and that is what Center College is all about, okay? And Center College has been off to an awesome start. You guys know that. It's been like 10 days of intense ministry for that ministry, um, and they're actually uh, concluding with a cookout after the service, right after this, outside of the church building, and so if, if you're a college student, hang out for that. Um, we had our very first large group gathering this past weekend, Center College United, which was awesome. So I think we got some pictures of that. So there's Pastor Justin killing it like he always does. Uh, man, it was great. I think we had like over 60 college students that were there, man, to build friendships, to worship, to hear the word of God. We're going to have our second Center College United this week, okay? It's going to be this week, Thursday at 8 p.m. I'm going to be speaking. I'm telling you, if less people come when I'm speaking, it's going to hurt my feelings, okay? So I need you to come. Um, it's going to be in our church offices. We're going to be coordinating rides. We're even going to have free Uber vouchers. So if uh, transportation is an issue for you, just DM Center College on Instagram, and we'll send you an Uber voucher. Now, it can't just be to, like, anywhere, okay? It can't just be like, oh, like, I want to go to the store. It's got to be to Center College United, but uh, we, we want to send you that, okay? Uh, we love you guys. We're grateful that you're here. So what I want to do is I just want to pray for, for you. I want to pray for our college ministry, and we're going to jump into First Peter, okay? So let's pray. Lord God, you are worthy of praise uh, at PVC, See, and at UVA, um, Lord, I, I believe and I know that the thing that every college student needs most, more than an education, more than a skill set, more than a future career or internship, God, is they need a relationship with you through Christ. Um, and so, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would fill, uh, man, every, every dorm room and every fraternity house and every classroom and athletic field and dining hall with a sense of your glory. And I pray that every one of these students, man, would just see your glory and see your goodness. They'd be drawn to it and anchored by it in college. And I just pray that you'd bless Center College, that we would just do a good job of reaching, discipling, and sending students for your glory, God. We love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, meet me in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We're in the second week of a series in the book of 1 Peter. Um, Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. And Peter wrote a letter to a group of churches, churches that are a lot like our church, explaining to them how is it you can live a faithful and fruitful life as an exile in the world. Okay, how can you live a faithful and fruitful life as an exile in the world? And last week was all about personal identity, okay? And so if that's a topic that you want to double-click on, go back and listen to that. But last week was all about personal identity. And here's what Peter said. He said, hey, you've been elected by God, but you've been rejected by the world. Okay, so you are deeply and faithfully loved by the most important being in the universe. That's elected, but this world is not your home. That's rejected. The Bible says because this world is broken, because this world is fallen, because this world is not your home, you are going to experience hardships and various trials. Hard things are going to happen in your life. So here's my question. What do you do when your life gets hard? What's your coping mechanism? What's your go-to? You want to know what mine is? Comfort food. Okay? Like when I've had a really hard week, all I want is a number one from Chick-fil-A with a, with a large fry and an upsized drink, okay? Don't judge me. I want as many calories as possible at once, okay? That's, I'm going to dunk it in Polynesian sauce. That's what I'm going to do. Okay, so my, mine is comfort food. I don't know what yours is. I don't know what your coping mechanism is when things are hard. Maybe yours is just like social media. I'm just going to like scroll social media and kind of like go brain de dead for a little while. Um, maybe yours is alcohol. Like, man, I'm just, I got to grab a beer. I got to grab a drink. I got to grab a glass of wine. Like, I just need something uh, to take the edge off of it. Uh, maybe yours is like going to that website that you know you really shouldn't be going to. Um, maybe yours is like impulse shopping. Uh, maybe, maybe you're a person who just goes inside of yourself. 
And you just like, when things get hard, you just, you shut everybody out, man, you just, you go to bed early, you stay in bed late, you just can't, that's like how you, how you cope with it. Um, the Bible's a very honest book. One of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is. And to be honest, there are some religions that are not honest. They're just not honest about life. They're like, oh, just like practice mindfulness, and then everything will be great, and you'll be transcendent. It's like, it doesn't work. It's like, my mindfulness doesn't change the things I'm walking through, right? But the Bible is anchored in concrete reality. And the Bible says, hey, here's the deal. Trials are coming. Trials are coming, whether they're physical trials, emotional trials, might be relational trials, maybe they're, they're mental health trials, maybe they're financial or vocational or spiritual trials. I don't know what trial is going to come into your life, but there is a trial that's going to come into your life. And what Peter is saying is it's not a question of will they come, it's a question of how will you respond when they come. How will you respond when trials come into your life? You might be in one right now, right? Will you respond in a way that is ultimately self-destructive? Or will you respond in a way that is ultimately God-glorifying and Jesus-honoring? That is the question of this section of Peter. And Peter wants to help us, just like he helped that, these early churches, respond to trials in a God-glorifying way. And he's going to show us five ways to do that. Okay, here's number one. Ready? Number one, worship God before the trial. Worship God before the trial. Here's what verse three says. Blessed. If you, if you have a paper Bible, one of those things from the 1980s, circle that. Um, if you have it on your phone, highlight it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay, so my other four points are reactive. That's like reactive defense. When you're in a trial, what do you do? This one is offensive. This is proactive. This is how do you prepare for trials before they come? And here's the summary of this point. You ready? The best way to prepare for trials in the future is to deepen your worship of God in the present. The best way to prepare for trials in the future is to deepen your worship of God in the present. Notice in verse 3 that Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that exclamation point? This is the only place in the entire letter Peter uses an exclamation point. He's not like us. He doesn't end every text message with three of them, right? It's like, this is it. This is the only time he uses it. And because it's the only one he uses, we should ask the question, why? Like, why is Peter using an exclamation point here? Man, because he is fired up. Here's what Peter's saying. Here's how I would translate this. He's saying this. Worship God. Bless his name. Pour out your praise to your creator and redeemer. Thank him. Honor him. Delight in him. Rejoice in him. We often use the word bless to talk about things in our lives, right? And that's fine. Like, this relationship is a blessing. This school is a blessing. My job is a blessing. That's fine. But notice in verse 3, verse 3 isn't about God blessing us. It's about us blessing God. Did you notice that? Peter is saying, bless the Lord. Pour out your praise and adoration to him. So here's a question. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time that you honestly blessed the name of the Lord? When was the last time you poured out your soul before God and you just worshiped him in spirit and truth? And you said, God, you are my greatest delight. You, you are the thing that I want more than anything else. God, you are glorious and you're kind and you're compassionate and you're just and you're gracious to me and I love you and I don't want to do anything else but worship you right now. Have you ever been able to say like David said in Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I mean, when was the last time you did that? Have you ever done that? Personal confession, it's very difficult for me to worship. And I'm like a professional Christian, you know? I heard one pastor say that when you're a professional Christian, I, I, I get paid to be good. You guys are good for nothing. That's how that works. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, you'll get that in 10 seconds. Um, 
Right, but I honestly have a hard time because when I come in here on Sunday, I should be focused on God and worshiping him. But you know what I'm often focused on? Like, why is it so dang hot in here? You know, and like, does that new person feel welcome? And like, oh, I got to like memorize my intro and all this. It's just, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. It's just so easy to be distracted in here. And I, and I don't really end up blessing the name of the Lord. I end up singing songs. And so that's my question to you. When was the last time that you poured out praise to God Almighty? Not the last time that you were around other people who were blessing the name of the Lord. The last time you blessed the name of the Lord. You see, worship has power in our lives. What we worship shapes our behavior. Let me give you a, a negative example of this from my own life. Um, I've, I've never, like, had a real salty mouth. You know, I've never used, like, real, I, like, grew up, my parents, you know, I, I literally got my mouth washed out with soap one time as, like, a kid, and I think it just stuck with me. Um, anyway, so, I, like, I've never really, like, struggled with language except during football games. You'd think I was like a sailor during football games. It was just like flying out. And I really didn't like it. Like I didn't, I was like, what is wrong with me? And I figured out eventually it was because I was worshiping football. So when things weren't going well, I played football in college. You're like, what is, why is he swearing at the television, you know? Um, so, so when things weren't going well in the game, I'm just like expletive after expletive. And I'm like, oh, this is like not, this is not good. And I realized it's because I loved football too much. Football was driving my behavior because I worshiped it. And so actually, this is really embarrassing. I kind of finally got it under control by like my senior year. I, ha I made up all these replacement phrases, you know, that were like, and so like people would like make fun of me with all my ridiculous, I'd be like, bless it, you know, like all this stuff. Um, but, but worship has power in our lives. Worship is a lot like an anchor. Whatever you care the most about, whatever you love the most, whatever you bless the most will be kind of the anchor in your life. And so here's the reality. If, if you bless the Lord, if he is the anchor in your life, if he is the thing that you love more than anything else, then you're going to be able to endure no matter what trials come. Because no matter what comes, it's not going to be able to take him away. But if my anchor, if your anchor, if the thing that I love most is something else and a trial takes that away, now I'm in trouble. You see the connection? You see the connection between worship and endurance? You see, worship has a remarkable way of reorienting us, doesn't it? Of, of broadening our perspective. You see, so often in trials, I'm this way, you're probably this way, I have my eyes in two places. I have the, my eyes inward on me and how I feel, and I have my eyes outward on my circumstances and how things are going. What worship does is it leads my eyes upward. And it reminds me that there's an eternal, infinite, gracious, loving, perfect, just Father who is for me and with me. And when I see that with my eyes, it helps me to have perspective and it comforts me in the circumstances I'm going through. It's why worship is one of the very best things to do when you're suffering and when you're going through a trial. I love how Charles Spurgeon, the old 18th, 1800s pastor, said it. He said, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing upon the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. In the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Lose yourself in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. And worship is a remarkable way to re worship has a remarkable power to reorient us and to broaden our perspective and to help us endure. So if you want to worship in your trials, start by worshiping before your trials. Okay, if you want to worship in your trials, start by worshiping before your trials. And Peter gives us two reasons to do that. Two reasons from this text to worship God before his trials. Here's the first one. Worship God because he's been merciful to you. Worship God because he's been merciful to you. Peter says, blessed be God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. What is mercy? Mercy is one of those church words we throw around, but we don't often define. Here's what mercy is. Mercy is when you do not receive a punishment that you deserve. 
Mercy is when you do not receive a punishment that you deserve. So when you sleep through your midterm, but your professor lets you take it the next day, okay, that is mercy, right? When you're pulled over for speeding, but the officer gives you a warning instead of a ticket, that is mercy. You deserve punishment, but instead you're receiving mercy. So what is great mercy? Well, great mercy is when you are spared great punishment for actions done repeatedly and persistently over time. That is what great mercy is. So how has God shown you great mercy? That's what Peter says. He says, hey, worship God because he's shown you great mercy. Well, in Christ, if you are in Christ, you've been spared condemnation. Rather than receiving the just punishment for your sins, you've been forgiven. Rather than crushing you in wrath, God has pursued you in kindness. Rather than cursing you, God has blessed you. Rather than separating you from himself for all eternity, God has brought you close as an adopted child. Man, in Christ, you have received great mercy. And friends, here's the reality. Here's a spiritual reality that I hope you take with you no matter where you go on from here. If you minimize sin, you will minimize God's grace and you will minimize worship. But when you have a biblical understanding of the sinfulness of sin and the seriousness of sin, you will then have a biblical understanding of the greatness of God's mercy and grace towards you and that will overflow in worship of him. An old pastor used to tell a story. He said, imagine that your neighbor... Uh, came up to you and said, you know, maybe dorm room or apartment or, or house and said, oh, hey, uh, while you were gone, um, the IRS came by and uh, they were looking for you and they said that you owed them some money, but I went ahead and paid it. And he would say, how would you respond to that? And he says, well, it depends entirely on how much money you owe the IRS, right? If you, if you, you know, if you like forgot, if you filed something incorrectly and it's like, oh, I need to like file, you know, I owe him like $350. You'd be like, oh man, that was like really gracious of you. Like maybe I'll take you out to dinner. But like imagine you've been running from the IRS for like a decade. And it's like they were coming, like, banging down the door. We're taking you to jail. You're never going to get out. And then your neighbor comes and pays it off. You fall on the ground and say, command me, right? Like, like the amount of debt that has been cleared determines how you respond. Well, that's what Peter is saying. Hey, you have been shown great mercy by God, and so you should respond in worship. Here's the second reason that we worship. Worship God because he's caused you to be born again. Worship God because he's caused you to be born again. So born again is how the Bible talks about conversion. It's how the Bible talks about becoming a Christian. So the Bible says that, you, that you're born physically, but that you need to be born again spiritually. And, and throughout church history, this doctrine has been one of the most offensive doctrines of the Christian faith. And the reason is that it's so profoundly humbling. Because here's what the doctrine of rebirth means for my personal life. My problem is deeper than I thought. I, I don't just need to reform my behavior and start some new habits. I need to be saved. I need a whole new life. If I'm a house, Jesus didn't buy me to renovate and update me. Jesus bought me to bulldoze me and to build something entirely different in its place. Man, that is, that is radically humbling. Actually, George Whitfield, who I mentioned earlier, the great evangelist of the 1700s, got kicked out of the Church of England because he wouldn't stop preaching that doctrine. And they were like, we don't want that doctrine. We don't like that doctrine. We're all good, traditional, moral people. We don't need to be born again. And Whitfield was like, I'm sorry. It's what the Bible says, and so I'm going to keep preaching. And they kicked him out. <laughs> right? It's very, very humbling. What it means, and this is a little bit direct, but what it means is that you can't be born as a Christian. So like if, if I were to talk to you and you were to say, and I would say, hey, when did you become a Christian? You say, oh, I've always been a Christian. I'd have some yellow flags. You can't be born as a Christian. God has no spiritual grandchildren. He only has spiritual children. You can, you can have grown up in a Christian home. You can have parents who were wonderful and who taught you about God. You can have believed in God for a very long time and maybe not even remember a time when you didn't. But there is a moment that you have to be born again to a living hope. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. Man, it's what Peter refers to here. So let me ask you, why, okay, great, Josh, born again. Why is that, why is that a reason to worship God? 
Like, why would that motivate us to bless his name? Well, here's why. In being born again and causing us to be born again, Jesus does for us what no other religion is able to do. Okay, so here, here's what every religion says. So every founder of every religion says the same thing. So, you know, whether it's Muhammad or a Buddha or Joseph Smith or Deepak Chopra or whoever your, you know, flavor is. So there's a founder, and they come, and they say, here's the list of things over here. And here's what you need to do. So, you know, it's the five pillars, the Eightfold Path, or the Book of Mormon, or whatever. Here's what you need to do. And if you do this, you'll be blessed, and, and you'll experience transcendence, and God will love you, and you get to go to paradise and all those things. Here's the problem. They tell you what to do. They don't give you any power to do it. Can I be honest with you? None of us like doing these things, right? Like, I'm a terrible Buddhist. You know, like, you're a terrible Hindu. Like, we're just not good at it. Like, human beings are not good at keeping the divine rules. It's not a problem of a lack of clarity, right? It's a problem of motivation. We don't want to do it. So every religious founder comes up, and maybe you get fired up, and you do it for a while, and then you stop. Here's what's radically different about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world, and he said, yeah, here, here is, here's the divine law. Here's what it means to know God. I'm going to give you the law of God, and I'm going to give you the power to keep the law of God. I am going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to cause you to be born again, and I'm actually going to write the law of God on your heart, as Ezekiel says, so that not only do you know the law of God, you start to want to do the law of God. And that is a radically, radically different offering. Jesus Christ says, not only did I come to tell you God's word, to tell you God's law, I also came to give you a desire and a power to accomplish it, to give you new affections, a new love for God. So think of it this way. Um, my, my two daughters had a birthday party yesterday. They came home with balloons, okay? Both those balloons were filled with oxygen. Uh, so they have bunk beds, so they're up in the top bunk bed, and they're playing with it, and what happens? Inevitably, it comes down off the bunk bed. They don't want to come down the steps, so they, what do they want me to do? They want me to get it and bring it back to them for like 35 minutes, okay? So it's like, I've been out, I've been down. Um, so here's the thing. Those, ox those balloons are, are, are filled with oxygen, so the only way I could get it back up to them is I had to smack it, right? So that's what I did. You come down, smack it back up there, and hit the fan sometimes, go, you know, like, like you have to smack it, right? That's the only way to keep it up. That is religion. That's religion. You don't really want to do the thing. You do the thing because somebody smacks you, right? So here's how a lot of you operate. I'm the smacker, you know? And you, you come in here, and it's like, boom, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, and like goes up in the air. But then you start coming down. So you're like, I better go to missional community this week. And it's like, wham, you know, it's like, ah, oh, you know. And it just like goes on and on and on. That's, that's religion, right? I don't want to do the thing, but if you convince me to do the thing through reward or through punishment, I'll do the thing, right? This is what's totally radical about the gospel. This is what's totally radical about being, when you are born again, it's like your balloon gets filled with helium. It's you're just changed. Fundamentally, God gives you a new heart and new desires and new affections so that you want to do the thing that God has called you to do, and I don't have to smack you around to like get the balloon to stay in the air. You just want to do it. Now, you're not perfect, but you start to look at the law of God, and you start to say, man, that's beautiful. And you start to say, like, David, I, I love the word of the Lord. It is sweet to me, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Man, I want to keep the law of the Lord. I want to worship God. I don't have to be here. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I don't have to give. I don't have to serve. I get to do those things. Man, that is what is so incredible about being born again. That is what God has done in your life. It's reason to praise him. And so my question is, has that happened in your life? Like, is your relationship with God more like the oxygen balloon or the helium balloon? I'm thinking of it this way. Uh, which one honors God more? Think about it. Is God honored by a bunch of people who do what he tells them because they're afraid he's going to punish them? Or is he honored by people who want to do what he calls them to do because they love him? Um, so my wife and I have been married 11 years. Imagine that um, I came home tonight after the service with a dozen roses. She's tired. She had the kids, you know, uh, all afternoon without me. And, and I come into the kitchen. I give her the dozen roses. She's like, oh, thank you so much. And she says, Josh, why would you get me these dozen roses? And I said, I'm going to be honest with you, Meredith. I got you these dozen roses because I was afraid if I didn't, you would freak out. 
like I'm talking like bar stools over the kitchen table, burning things, you know, not talking to me for a month. Like, if I don't give you these roses, you're going to freak out. Would my wife feel honored by that? No. <laughs> she would not feel honored by that, right? But isn't that kind of what we do with God? It's like, hey, I'll, I'll give you this thing because I don't want you to freak out and punish me. I don't really want to do it. I don't really love you, but I, I, you know. Now, imagine if I came home, same dozen roses, gave it to my wife. She said, oh, my goodness, what are these for? And I said, babe, I just love you. I just lo- I love your character. I love your sense of humor. I love, I love how compassionate you are. I love your empathy. I love what a servant you are. I just love you, and I just wanted to tell you that with these roses. Well, now she's honored. Right now, I'm, in the, I'm, the, I'm out of the doghouse, right? No bar stools getting flung. Right, well, when we worship God out of a heart that's been born again, we're honoring him. Because we're not worshiping him because we have to, because we're afraid he's going to freak out. We're worshiping him because we love him, and he's the greatest desire of our heart, and he's our treasure, and he's our affection. So Peter says, look, you've been born again to a living hope. What no, what no other religion could ever do, what you could never do through your own moral improvement, if you were in Christ, Jesus has done for you. He's taken out your heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh. And so a good question for all of us to wrestle with is like, does my heart look like it's born again? Do I have a longing and a desire for the Lord, or am I just kind of going through the motions because I don't want to... I don't want to get punished by God. So Peter says, hey, man, worship God before the trials. Lay a foundation of praise. And do that because God has been merciful to you and do that because God has called you to be born again to a living hope. Okay, here's the second thing he calls us to do in trials. Number two, hope in God during the trial. Hope in God during the trial. Here's what he says. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I have a good friend who's a biblical counselor, and he spends hundreds of hours every year counseling people who are walking through trials. And he said to me, Josh, the number one thing that you need in a trial is hope. He said, if you have hope, you can endure a lot. If you lose hope, man, then you're in a lot of trouble. If you're in Christ, then you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, is that? what does that mean? Why does he say that way? Jesus, and I know this is very basic, Jesus is not dead. Right? Every other religious founder is dead. They're gone. Their teachings live on, but they don't. But Jesus Christ is alive. I mean, that's the whole foundation of Christianity, is that Jesus died on the cross, was buried. Three days later, rose again. Spent 40 days appearing to his disciples, ascended into heaven, is there right now, interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. You see, if you're a Christian, you have a living hope, not a metaphoric hope, right? Not, not some sort of symbolic hope, a living, active, real hope. Jesus Christ interceding on your behalf no matter what you're going through. Right? You have an anchor for your soul. The question is, are you, are you taking advantage of it? Is that where you look for hope in your trials? I was thinking about this this week for my, myself personally. I had, to, I had to admit to myself, maybe you can relate with this, often it's not. I, there's usually two places that I look in my own trials. The first is I look around me and I hope the circumstances will change. You ever been there? Like, gosh, if I can just get through this season at work. Like if I, if this, this relational conflict going on in my friend group, if we can just, if we can just get past this, get to peace again. Like if I could just get out of the season of singleness, like if I could just get into a relationship, if we could just have kids, if I could just make like 10,000 more dollars, man, if I, if I could just get through this first semester, right, if I could just get this exam over with, like if, if my circumstances would change, then I would have hope. That's the first place I look. The second place I look, if I'm honest, is I look inward. And I think I'm the kind of person that can handle this. You know, like I kind of build myself up, like we can do this. You know, positive outlook, optimism. I look in my si- inside for hope. The problem is neither of those sources of hope really are secure in the end. Right? My circumstances sometimes change, but sometimes they don't. I mean, l- let's say you have chronic pain. 
Let's say you have an, un, an undiagnosable medical condition. Let's say your spouse leaves. Maybe you have a, a child who has special needs. Maybe one of your loved ones passes away. It's like, that's not changing. And so if your hope is in your circumstances getting better and your circumstances don't get better, you're going to be left with the conclusion that you have no hope. Or let's say you're going to look inside yourself again and again and again. Well, that only works until you fail yourself, right? It only works until you reach a breaking point and you don't have all the answers and, and you don't know where hope is going to come from. It doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And no, no matter how much optimism and how many naps you take, you simply can't get up anymore, right? It fails. It's not a living hope. But what Peter is saying to us is, is if you are in Christ, you have a living hope. You have a, lo- a hope outside of you that is greater and stronger and over all of your circumstances that you can count in, and none of your trials can take it away. None of your trials can take away the living hope that you have in Christ. You see, too often we put our hope in things that the Bible simply doesn't promise us. Right? We, we, we say things like, man, I'd be so happy if I could just be in a relationship. If I could just get married, if I could just have kids. If I could just get a good internship, right, do well in school, get a job that I enjoy in a city that's cool, make enough money to be able to do what I want, have a second home, et cetera, et cetera. Now, those things aren't bad, but the Bible just doesn't promise any of those. Like, the Bible doesn't promise you're going to get married, doesn't promise you'll have kids, doesn't promise you'll have a good job, doesn't promise you're going to do well in school. It just doesn't. What the Bible does promise is that you will face tribulations and trials, which is honestly more real life, right? But guys, the hope of the gospel is not heaven on earth. The hope of the gospel is heaven one day. And so if you put your hope in changing circumstances, if you push your hope in your life, you know, achieving some preferred future, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and disillusionment. Because, guys, this world is not our home. This world is broken and it's fallen, and there's some beautiful and wonderful things about it, but there's a lot of very, very broken and fallen and painful things about it. And so we need to have a hope that is stronger than our circumstances, and that's what we have in Christ, a living hope. He's living, reigning, and interceding on our behalf. Here's the third thing. Remember God's with you in the trial. Remember God's with you in the trial. So we hope in God in the trial. We also remember God is with us in the trial. Peter writes this. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is very easy to think of God as a heavenly father who gives you a pep talk each morning and sends you out to deal with the issues of your life. Isn't that easy to think that way about God? I do that all the time. It's like I have my quiet time. I'm like talking with God, you know, and then it's like, all right, now it's Josh time. And now it's like, go out there and deal with all my issues. Right? But verse 5 says otherwise. Verse 5 says God is actively guarding you until the day of your salvation is fully realized. What that means is the day of your salvation is fully realized on the day that either you go to meet Jesus or Jesus comes back. So until the day that you are handed over to Jesus, finished and final, God is actively guarding you by his power. That word guarded means kept safe and carefully watched. It means God is continually using his power to guard you by means of your faith. Think about that. Um, you ever been walking through like a bad neighborhood at night? Like maybe you just like ended up there on accident. I don't know. Um, this happened to me. Meredith and I went to Miami uh, a few years ago. We were staying at this hotel and uh, we wanted to eat Cuban food because, you know, Cuban food, right? And so um, like I pulled up walking directions on my phone and we're like walking. And like about 10 minutes in, I realized like this was not a good plan. You know, it's like here I am. I don't know where I am. We're like in like a pr- kind of a rough part of town and it's like late. And I'm like, you know, feeling kind of nervous, like a little bit, like very heightened, you know. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in an experience like that, but if not, bear with me. Maybe like you guys have only ever lived in the middle of the country or something. But anyway, so this is, this is what's going on. Um, now, in a moment like that, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling worried. What would happen if all of a sudden like one of your friends was with you? You like to feel a little bit better, right? Like, oh, okay, it's not just me now. No, it's like both of us. It's like power and numbers, right? Um, now, now, what would happen if your friend was like a former college athlete, like a pretty big guy who was into MMA, you know? You're like, okay, I'm feeling better about the situation, you know? 
Now imagine he's not just a big guy who's a former college athlete in MMA. He's also an active Navy SEAL. And it's not just him. It's actually all of the SEALs in his team. At that point, you're like, I kind of hope something does go down. You know, like, it'd be kind of fun to watch. <laughs> right? So, so the same situation, same place, you're still in it, and yet you feel radically different. Why is that? Because now you're being guarded by great power. Same situation, walking through it, but you're walking through it differently because you're being guarded by great power. Now, how much greater is God's power than a team of Navy SEALs? I mean, infinitely greater, right? How much greater is his wisdom, his control, his discernment, and his commitment to you? I mean, it's infinitely greater. The Lord has made some incredible promises to his people. Okay, I'm going to read just three of them. Every time you see the pronoun you, I want you to think your name, okay? Bear with me. Do that for me, okay? Every time you see the, the, the word you. Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You hear the elect language from last week? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43 assumes two very important things. Number one, it assumes you will walk through trials. And number two, it assumes that the Lord will walk with you. Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Hebrews 13, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friends, when I'm anxious and when I'm worried and when I'm scared about the future, it is usually because I have forgotten that God is with me. And may I suggest to you that maybe the reason you struggle so much with anxiety and maybe the reason you struggle so much with worry and maybe when you look into the future, you're, you're filled with just kind of a panic-inducing fear is because you're looking at the future devoid of the grace of God. Will there be trials in the future? Undoubtedly. If you are in Christ, will God be with you? Absolutely. When you are in the trial, you need to not only remember that you have hope in God, you need to remember that you have the presence of God. The very Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is called in the New Testament? The Comforter. He's there to walk with you, to comfort you, to strengthen you, and to help you endure and press through what you could not endure on your own. So number three, when you're in your trial, you need to remember that God is with you. Here's number four. You need to know that there's purpose in your trial. You need to know that there's purpose in your trial. Peter writes this in verse six. In this you rejoice, that is your salvation. Though now, for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is honest about facing trials, but notice that he sandwiches the phrase various trials between two phrases which emphasize the purpose of those trials. First, he says, if necessary, well, if necessary implies Purpose, okay, if it's necessary, this is going to happen. I guess it's necessary. Then after that, he says, so that. That is a statement of purpose. So that the genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory. Here's what we know. We can bear up under a lot if there's purpose in it. Right? That's probably true of you. Like, there are some things you've done. There are some things you've walked through that have been very challenging, but you were able to do it because you saw the purpose. But if you don't think there's any purpose in suffering, it is crushing. It is absolutely crushing. But here's what we know from this text and from other places in Scripture. Christian trials are never pointless. 
Christian trials are never pointless. Every trial in your life is father filter. Every trial in your life has to pass through the hands of your perfectly wise, loving, gracious, committed heavenly father. That doesn't mean that God causes all your trials. So sometimes you're in a trial because of the sinful choices of someone else. Sometimes you're in a trial because of your own sinful choices. Sometimes you're in a trial just because of the broken nature of living in this world or the brokenness of our bodies. But even when you're walking through trials that are caused by the brokenness of this world, God is still using those trials for your good. So in the book of Genesis, there's a a man named Joseph who is sold into slavery by his wicked brothers. And he suffers as a victim of human trafficking for 10 years, over a decade. You want to talk about a trial. I mean, it's completely unjust. He suffered, uh, that he becomes a slave, and then he gets kicked out of his, his owner's house, and he gets put in prison. I mean, it's just it's a horrible story. But God works through all those circumstances to elevate him to a position of influence and power in Egypt. And by the end of the story, he is the second in command of Egypt, and he actually uses his power to save his family from starving to death. And so he's in front of his brothers, and they're worried that he's going to use his power to execute justice. And this is what he says to them in uh, in Genesis, I think it's 50 or 51. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What does that mean? It means that they did something wicked and sinful. And yet even that wicked, sinful act of injustice, somehow in his power and sovereignty, God used that for Joseph's good. How would it change your perspective in life if every single time you walked through a trial, you said, to my, you said to yourself, God is using this in my life, right? How would it change how you're feeling at work? Like, how would it change how you're feeling about singleness? How would it change how you're feeling overwhelmed about all the things you're trying to get done at school and you're not sure if you're going to be able to do it? How would it change how you feel about the, the, just the brokenness in your extended family and the fact that your parents are getting divorced or you're estranged from your siblings? How would it change how you interact with that neighbor that you just you have a really hard time with and there's always drama? How, how would it change how you interact with your kids when they're breaking your heart? How would it change how you, man, hear that diagnosis from the doctor? If every time that happened, you said to yourself, what is biblical? You said, this is, this is painful, this is grievous, but this is not pointless. My heavenly Father is using this for my good and his glory in some way. Um, Tim Keller, in his his fantastic book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, makes this observation. He says that American culture is the least prepared in modern history to deal with suffering. Because we are obsessed with happiness, suffering can be viewed as nothing but adversarial to our meaning and purpose in life. So if your only purpose in life is to just enjoy as much as you can, be as happy as you can for as long as you can, and to squeeze as much pleasure out of this world as possible. If there is nothing after this life, you're just a cosmic accident. You're not here on purpose or for purpose. It's just like, man, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Then what is suffering if not a painful interruption in your purpose in life? And what if your suffering doesn't go away? What if it's chronic? What if it never changes? Is your, is your life over? Is it just you've lost your purpose in life? You see, the the point that Keller is making is that, man, modern kind of secular ideology does not have the philosophical resources to deal with suffering. So often what we do is we just sort of try to ignore it, press it down, medicate against it. It's why we often distance ourselves from other people who are suffering because we just don't know what to do with it. For our society, suffering is a pointless interruption of purpose in life. But for Christians, trials are painful but never pointless. They're painful but they're never pointless. We don't always see the purpose right away. And sometimes you won't see the purpose 
on this side of eternity. But by faith, we trust that God is perfect and loving and good, and he is working all things together for good for those who have been called according to his purposes. So what are some of the reasons that we find in Scripture? Why does God lead us through trials or allow us to go through trials? I'll give you a couple. The first is to wean us from worldliness. Wean us from worldliness. It's so easy to put our hope practically in this world and, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and buying a big house and, you know, having a, a spouse and two and a half kids and a labradoodle and, you know, all these, all these things. It's just so easy to put our hope there. And what happens is, is when we suffer and go through trials, we realize just how fleeting this world is. I remember this happened to me in, in high school. This is kind of a small thing, but I worship football. I told you that earlier. That's why I swore so much. And, um, and then I broke my leg my junior year of high school. And it was devastating to me. And it showed me just how much I'd put my hope in football. And it showed me just how, how silly that was. Because it, it's just, it just can't satisfy. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts at us in our pain. So one of the reasons you might be going through a trial is to wean you from worldliness. A second reason might to reveal what you truly love. To reveal what you truly love. There's a phrase that says this, suffering introduces a man to himself. Suffering introduces a man to himself. Sometimes when we walk through trials, we say, I had no idea how much I loved that thing. Like sometimes you don't really know how much you love money or how much you love the approval of other people or how much you, you, know, you love this job or that school or this relationship until it's threatened. You go, whoa. I didn't realize that that was my character and now I see it and, and God is revealing to me what I truly love. Here's another reason, to enable you to comfort others. And to enable you to comfort others. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that God comforts us in our affliction so that we might comfort others with the comfort that we have received. So I've seen my wife do this recently. She walked through a trial a couple years ago. It was very, very challenging. But just this week, she was on the phone for an hour with a, another pastor's wife who's walking through the same thing. And my wife was able to comfort her with the comfort that she had received. I mean, this is why, for many of you, your greatest ministry will come out of your greatest trial. The thing that you're able to comfort and encourage others with is the thing that you walked with God through. Right? So that might be the reason you're in a trial. It might be this. It might be to humble you. It might be to humble you, to help you recognize how dependent you are on God's grace, to make you more patient with other people. This is the case for me. My, my uh, summer before my senior year of college, I spent a summer at this camp, and it was awful. I never want to do it again. Um, but what God did is he used that season of trial and of suffering to really build much-needed humility in my character. Right? So God might be bringing you through a trial to humble you. Finally, he might be bringing you through a trial to test your faith. That's the purpose that Peter mentions explicitly here in verse 7. Do you see that? He said, your faith is like gold. So back then, the only way to tell if, if a gold coin was genuine was to melt it. Right? Because you could take copper and gild it with gold right? and make you know, fake money. But if you put it down into the heat and it melted, if it was copper, you could tell. It's also the only way to remove impurities from gold. So even today, if you want to remove impurities from gold, you have to melt it, and then you can scrape the impurities off the top, and then you have a pure piece of gold. So here's what that means. This is what trials do to your faith. They reveal the strength of it and the impurities in it. They reveal the strength of it and the impurities in it. A false faith won't make it through the fire, but a true faith will be purified by it. A false faith won't make it through the fire, but a true faith will be purified by it. Be just very on your level here for a second. College is for many people the first refining fire. It's the first time you're out from your parents' house and you have to decide, am I going to do this? Am I going to own my faith? There are so many temptations. Man, am I going to own my faith? Am I going to pursue the Lord or am, I, or am I not? Another big one is young adulthood. So when you first graduate, you're in, your, in a new town, you're away from your community, there's nobody that's really helping you grow. It's like, am I going to prioritize my faith? Am I going to go plug into a local church? 
Another big season is, is when you, man, are, are, are delayed something that you really want. Let's say you're single and you really want to be in a relationship. That's a refining season. Because what a lot of people do is they say, man, I really want to be in a relationship. I'm getting older. I'm going to start changing my standards. Because this thing is more important to me than, than honoring the Lord. You see, when we go through these seasons and it gets hot, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. And if we walk through those seasons with the Lord, it's a way that he purifies our faith. And then you look back and you say, wow, I really am a Christian. I really am a Christian because that wasn't easy. Like, it wasn't easy to be the one person on my dorm room that was different than everybody else. It wasn't easy to be the one girl that didn't have a boyfriend. It wasn't easy to be, man, the young adult who was single and faithful to the Lord. Like, it wasn't easy to do that. And yet I did. And I think that should give me some confidence that I really am a Christian. Um, I saw a really powerful uh, example of this. There's an American pastor, um, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching guy, loves the Lord. Um, and he was ministering in a denomination that jettisoned biblical authority. So they basically threw out the Bible and said, no, the Bible's not our authority anymore. And um, they were pressuring him that he had to change his convictions. Or they said, hey, if you don't change your convictions, we're going to kick you out of the denomination. He pastored a big old church, like 4,000 people in a historic building that was 230 years old. George Washington went to that church, okay? That's old. All right? And he was like, no, like, this is what the Bible says. Like, I'm not going to compromise my convictions. They said, okay. So they kicked him out of the denomination. They took the building. Where do you find a place to have 4,000 people have church, you know? So they took the building. They took his salary. It wasn't paid anymore. Get this. They took his retirement. He was in his 60s. Imagine putting into your retirement since you were 22 years old, and you're like, great, compound interest. This is good. Uh, and then they, they just take it. I don't even know how that's legal. They just, they just took it away. And I saw, he did this interview. It was fascinating. He said, uh, quote, when they took my retirement and I still believed the gospel, I knew I was really a Christian. <laughs> it's just like, I, it cost me a lot. Like, it cost me a lot to stand on my principles and to stand on my convictions. But I must be a Christian because it's cost me so much, and I'm still doing it. You might say it this way. A faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. So know there's purpose in your trial. Here's the last thing. Number five. Have a view of Jesus that's bigger than your trial. Verse 8, though you have not seen him being Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the thrust of those verses is that when you become a Christian, you develop a deep abiding love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't see him physically, but you love him. He's not right here in front of him, but you believe in him and you rejoice in your salvation. Friends, we need a view of Jesus that's bigger than our suffering and better than our sin. We need to see his beauty and glory and patience and courage. We need to see his justice and his wisdom, his sacrifice, his atonement, his resurrection, and his return. When Jesus is your foundation, you will be able to sing in the midst of the storm because your house is built on the rock. But if your foundation is anything else, when the storm threatens that salvation, your house will fall and great will be the fall of that house. Verse 10, Peter concludes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this is what that means. The prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elijah, those guys, they looked forward to the work of Christ. They strained their eyes trying to understand how is all this going to happen? Like how is the Son of Man, the glorious, powerful Son of Man, and the suffering servant, how are they going to be the same person? How is this going to work? They long to see what we see in the scriptures. We live in a pretty privileged time in history. We get to look back and see what the prophets long to see and by faith proclaim. But it's not just the prophets. Look at verse 12. 
It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, into which angels long to look. So the prophets look forward to the gospel. The angels long to look into the gospel. You and I get to experience the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is a very big deal. (laughs) He is the hero of the scriptures. He is the center point of all that God has been doing for thousands of years, and he is the one that we will be worshiping for thousands more years to come. Jesus Christ is the center of scripture. Jesus Christ is a treasure worth pursuing. And friends, Jesus Christ suffered. Did you catch that? In verse 11, his sufferings and his subsequent glories. You see, one of the things that makes Christianity unique is that God knows what it feels like to suffer. God did not stay insulated in heaven, but he took on flesh and came into the broken world in which we make, our, uh, we make our living. Jesus knows what it's like to face trials. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. Jesus knows what it's like to feel emotional pain, spiritual pain, physical pain. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one. Jesus has felt the pangs of death itself. So here's my question. Why would someone who is insulated from suffering be willing to enter into it? We don't do that. We spend most of our lives avoiding suffering. And yet Jesus Christ, insulated from suffering in heaven, willingly took on flesh and endured incredible suffering. Why did he do that? So that you could have a living hope. So that you could have a living hope. We have hope in our trials because Jesus Jesus Christ walked faithfully through his. What was his trial? His trial was the cross. He went to a cross with my name on it, with your name on it. He bore our sin on his shoulders. He died the death that I deserve, that you deserve. He paid the penalty of our sin. You see, God's mercy is great, but God's mercy is not cheap. It costs the blood of his only son. But Jesus endured his trial so that through faith in him, we could have hope in all of ours. Um, So my favorite book is uh, Lord of the Rings. No surprise there. Shout out to all the nerds out there. Um, My favorite moment in the book is at the end of Two Towers in the Battle of Helm's Deep. So um, the the people of Rohan are totally outnumbered and outgunned, and it does not look good. And they've been fighting. They've been, you know, valiant effort, but it's like a lot of their guys have died, and it's it's just over. Like, they're going to die. And so they kind of gather together in their keep, and they say, hey, let's, let's do one more charge, and let's just have a noble death. That's what they say. It's just a really powerful moment. So they all gather up and they, they kick the door open and they go riding down this road and they're just like slaying orcs as they go. But it just doesn't matter. I mean, you just look around. They're just totally encompassed by this enemy. They're gonna die. And, and it's about to happen. I mean, guys are getting pulled off their horses and like it's, a, it's about to be the moment that it's all over and suddenly everything changes. And they look up and on the horizon, they see this point of light. And on the crest of the valley, there's Gandalf the wizard. And he comes riding down into the valley at the head of this host of reinforcements. And they come, they come flying down the valley and they overrun the enemy and the people of Rohan are saved. I tell you that because sometimes your life is gonna feel like you're outnumbered and you're outgunned. It's gonna feel like there's no hope. And the waves of grief are gonna come on and they're gonna come on hard and it's gonna feel like you're absolutely But if you're in Christ, what I want you to know is that Jesus is always on the horizon for you. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He's sending his angelic messengers to support you. 
And one day he's going to ride down into the valley at the head of an angelic army. And he's going to destroy every one of his enemies. And he's going to wipe away every evil, wicked deed. And, and tears will be no more. And death and sign will be no more because he's going to make all things new. So as you walk through the trials of your life, and you will walk through trials, keep your eyes fixed on the horizon.